The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Wednesday, May 23rd, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, I got into this racket to do sports talk. That is what I thought I would do. I listened to it a lot. I learned the tropes, the rhythms. Now, I do have this Upon Further Review podcast, but it is not the jaw-dropping, stomach-churning blast furnace of hot sports takes that I've come to love. Upon Further Review is it's well-reported. It's highly produced. This last episode can even be described as artistic. But what I need to do is I I want to honor the burning, searing, scalding sports blowtorch within. And now I can. I've been given this gift. The NFL, have you seen this? The NFL has come out with a policy to ban players from kneeling. Can't kneel during the national anthem or players will be fined. Hey, they're a private business. They can do what they want. But I'll tell you, if you're an owner and you've got a 70% African-American employee base, and you tell them, you stand up on the job. Well, that might be a cause for blowback, shall we say. You might have a problem. Here now is NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell's statement. The policy adopted today was approved in concert, except you're allowed to sit down at a concert, in concert with the NFL's ongoing commitment to local communities. Let's think about kind of communities, gated communities, some high-end suburban communities, and our country, one that is extraordinary in its scope, resources, and alignment with our players. Yes, you're threatening to find your players for their views because you are so in alignment with their views. That's the great way to show people that you agree with them. He continues, we are dedicated to continuing our collaboration with players to advance the goals of justice and fairness in all corners of our society. Mm -hmm. The efforts by many of our players sparked awareness and action around issues of social justice that must be addressed. Yes, yes, he's right here, actually. The actions did spark awareness. So let us credit the awareness as he has. Listen to how he gives them credit. The platform we have created together is certainly unique in professional sports and quite likely in American business. We are honored to work with our players to drive progress. So here he is saying that the player has certainly created awareness, and he's doing so within a statement about the policy that punishes the exact actions that created this awareness. This season, all league and team personnel shall stand and show respect for the flag and the anthem. Stand. Do not kneel. Got it. But what about the gray areas in between? What about a crouch, a little squat, maybe a lean? I mean, this is a league that can't define a catch. There are two ways to move the ball. One's a catch. They have no definition of it. So now they're they're in a position to define standing. Okay, let's remember, the call on the field was hunched. The Parker was hunched. Here, Steratore is going under the hood to look at the replay. Remember, he has to see if there's clear and compelling evidence to overturn the call on the field. Was the back leg straight? You know, Dan, I have here, I'm handed here a note that says Parker had scoliosis as a kid. Does that factor into the decision? All right, all right, here, let's wait. Here's Gene Steratore with the decision. After further review, by the way, it is after further review when they actually say it. Used to be upon, now it's after. After further review, the player's posture was found to have been stooped. 
Stoop, doop, doop. The fine stands. The owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Art Rooney, explained uh, the wiggle room that the league has created by saying those who are not comfortable standing for the anthem have the right to stay off the field, (laughs) implying, and critics of this decision have the right to shut the fuck up. (laughs) We urge you to pursue that right with constitutional vigor. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones said that he would bench any Dallas player who refuses to stand for the anthem. Now, at this point, we should cut right to the visual of Jones, who locked arms with his players and knelt on the field before a game. Yes, but that was a Cowboys unity kneel. That's like when you call a fat guy slim or the most loathed team in football, America's team. Cincinnati Bengals owner Mike Brown reportedly told free agent safety Eric Reed that he planned to require Bengals players to all stand for the anthem. Reed, by the way, is very talented safety, has not been signed by a new team, Is it a coincidence that last month he presented Colin Kaepernick, the Ambassador of Conscience Award from Amnesty International in Amsterdam? Reed, by the way, is now suing the NFL. And I would say that Mike Brown, the owner of the Bengals, should be more concerned with creating instances where his quarterback can kneel at the end of the game than preventing his players from kneeling before. I will end now with the last line of Roger Goodell's statement. Last line. We believe today's decision... We'll keep our focus on the game and the extraordinary athletes who play it and on our fans who enjoy it. Yeah, and Browns fans believe they've finally drafted a good quarterback. Good luck with all that. On the show today, I spiel about the taxi king who flipped. But first, Philip Roth has died. The author was 85 years old, a towering figure of American letters. He was also a really important Jew His characters were confessional at a time when that was looked down upon, and Roth certainly brought it when it came to, oh, let us say, an uncomfortable honesty when it came to things such as uh, self-love. I saw, I heard the BBC today describing some of his selections as writing about, quote, excessive masturbation. I don't know, that's a little subjective, but Roth certainly went there, and now so do we. Philip Roth, America's greatest novelist, not to have won the Nobel Prize. Well, that's how he was frequently identified. The greatest living American novelist not to have won the Nobel Prize in literature is sadly no longer living. The author of Portnoy's Complaint and so many other books made a lasting contribution, not only to letters, but also to Judaism, which brings me to Mark Oppenheimer. He is the host of Unorthodox, which is uh, the, the Jewish podcast from Panoply. Though, you know, the Gentiles are more than invited to listen for six years. Mark wrote the religion column, the beliefs column for the New York Times. Hi, Mark. How are you? Uh, good. Not only are Gentiles invited to listen, we have a token Gentile of the week every week. What? Uh, so, what? you know, we, we, yeah, absolutely. Because what is Judaism without a, a Gentile lurking, asking us, uh, crazy questions, uh, about right. us. So making the Jews both uh, a little defensive, but also preening to get the Gentiles approval. Oh, well, exactly. And also, who's going to deliver our bacon that we surreptitiously eat <laughs> while pretending to keep kosher? I mean, the, the, you know, the, the Gentiles are very instrumental to this whole project. So as a novelist, how much did Philip Roth define what it means to be a Jewish American in the later part of the 20th century? 
he was hugely influential, I would say, in two ways. Um, number one, he really influenced the Jewish conversation, like the kind of thing that you would talk about when the Passover Seder was winding down and people had had enough religion or the synagogue service was over and everybody was eating the whitefish and lox and you know doing doing shots of Slivovitz. What are you going to talk about? And for a lot of the century, from, from 1959, when he first published uh, his first book, Goodbye Columbus, really until, um, until today, <laughs> until this very moment, um, a lot of the conversation has revolved around Philip Roth. And it was very often controversial, right? I mean, he was seen as an enemy of Jewish mothers because of his portrayal of, of Sophie Portnoy in Portnoy's Complaint. He was seen as um, somebody who, who aired Jewish dirty laundry, going all the way back to the portrayal of crass materialistic Jews in Goodbye Columbus. Um, so he was somebody who really influenced the conversation. But the other thing I would say is that he was much more attentive to the nuances of Jewish life and practice and religion and theology than he's usually given credit for. There are a lot of observant Jews in his novels, and there are a lot of people in reaction against religious observance. So whether you were part of a secular conversation or you were actually interested in Jewish spirituality, his dozens of novels had something for you. Now, I have to say, I know the Jews. I am of the Jews. I am half Jew. And this idea that we needed someone to help us airing the Jewish dirty laundry, it seems that's something that the Jews will do without anyone prompting them. But maybe <laughs> maybe this is like um, not giving credit credit to Sgt. Pepper's just because all other music after it sounds a little like it. Um, well, okay, f- fair enough, my, my pizza bagel friend. You are correct uh, as a half Jew that we are pretty good at airing our dirty laundry. And, you know, we never go too many years also without just creating all sorts of laundry. I mean, there's, you know, Bernie Madoff's aplenty, right? That said, you have to remember that in 1959, when the short stories were coming out, you know, with regularity from this 25, 26-year-old genius, that was a period where Jews were still really struggling for acceptance. Like, you go back to a 1959 short story like Eli the Fanatic, which is included in that first collection, Goodbye Columbus, and it's about Jews who have moved into a town that only recently was restricted to just Protestants. And so then, in that story, you know, they're worried when an Orthodox guy moves into town and and is going to mess up the acceptance that has been so hard won for these Jewish assimilationists. In 1959, even into the 60s and 70s, it was a whole different story. And the idea that you could be publicly Jewish, that you could wear a yarmulke, that you could ask your business lunch to to have kosher food for you was much more difficult. Um, Today, we're living in an age of a lot more kind of ethnic pride for all groups, but he was writing Jewishly proud literature at a time when that was a much more difficult thing to do. So how does the white guy in Kansas, the the black woman in Columbus, Ohio, the uh, fairly plugged in, but, you know, someone who doesn't know a mitzvah from a schwitz, how is that person affected <laughs> by, by Roth? Uh, okay, so in two ways. Um, if you're somebody who loves literature, even if you're just someone who loves laughing, he's an extremely funny novelist, uh, and he's funny about sex. So so let me first say that, that if you, um, if you like laughing and if you like sex. And honestly, are are there any two things (laughs) on which there's more general agreement than that laughter and sex are good, right? Not in the Pence household, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Then you go to a book like, you know, like Portnoy's Complaint or a lot of his later books as well. You go to The Counter Life, uh, for example, and you have these books where there's a lot of good sex and they're very, very funny as well. So, So that's one thing is that, you know, Portnoy's Complaint was as frank a book about sexuality in all of its 
possibilities, all of its permutations, as we had seen up until that point. There had certainly been obscene literature. There had been banned books before then. But the raw viscerality, or viscerality, visceralness of, you know, Alexander Portnoy masturbating into a piece of liver that his mother's going to cook for dinner that night. You know, nobody had seen anything like it. So his books really hold up as funny books, and they hold up as books that are frank about sexuality. And I think even a Gentile in Kansas or an assimilated Jew anywhere will love that stuff. The other thing is, you know, when you say, well, how do people, how do people relate to him is that he really was part of a confessional turn in American literature, uh, something that he and someone like John Updike were doing at the time, but which is really everywhere now is they were taking the big novel, the, the sort of great novel about American life, and they were making it the domain, say, of really insecure first-person male narrators. I mean, in a sense, they were doing for fiction what poets like Sylvia Plath or Robert Lowell were doing for poetry, which was making, giving us these first-person, really vulnerable, sensitive, often male, but not always narrators, rather than the sort of like on-high, third-person, Henry James kind of uh, imperious view from above. So if you like confessional literature, and again, we're living in the age of the nonfiction memoir, we all love confession, Roth was very pioneering in that too. Yeah, I think you could also make the case that without Philip Roth, there is no Woody Allen, and by extension, there is no Howard Sterner, they're a lot different, and there is no Amy Schumer, and to take it beyond the... And there is no even kind of uh, more mainstream, less confrontational humor like City Slickers, which is written by a writing team where one of the writers is named Babalu Mandel based on a character in a right. Philip Roth book. But also, I don't know if... I don't know, I think Richard Pryor changes, and I think Chris Rock changes. And I think that there is an ineffable impact on the society that Roth had that we do feel, especially in comedy. I think that's right. And and I think you're seeing the conflation of two things there. You're seeing the coming together of two things. One is this sort of radical uh, candor, the idea of, of vulnerability, vulnerability about sexuality, about racial angst, about assimilationist angst, about ethnic insecurity, coming together also with this sort of Freudian analysis, the way that all of those people, you know, and again, this this is certainly prior, right? And also Stern, right? Who who basically just puts oh, himself absolutely. on the sofa yeah. and analyzes himself. So, and, and Roth is very attuned to that. His characters are often making references to Freud and, and mid-century, as we know from Mad Men, was the era of analysis. It was the era when, when Jews, Gentiles, middle-class people were putting themselves on the sofas and really analyzing and digging deep into their feelings. Um, Roth said the one difference between him and, and up and Bellow was that John Updike and Saul Bellow looked outwards. They wanted to see the great American panorama, whereas he, Philip Roth, said, I like, you know, I'm digging a hole down into my own psyche and looking inwards. And I think that that's also true of all the comics you're talking about. Yeah, I think early on he was, uh, he embraced the neuroticism. I think societally we've maybe gone a little too far down that road, like recognizing it and reveling in it, in it without doing much to change it. But tell me if I'm wrong. I haven't read most of his later novels, but I read... Uh, what was it, The Plot Against America, the Charles Lindbergh one? Yep. It seemed that he broadened out and stopped writing so much about, but this is how artists go. First it's about the self, then it's about the other. He did start tackling big societal issues later on. Yeah, I mean, there was a trio of of later novels, which included um, American Pastoral and I Married a Communist and The Human Stain. These are novels from the, you know, the 90s and the early aughts. By the way, he's writing these at an age when many novels have completely run out of creative steam. I mean, in, in that regard, his late work was so much greater than the late work of some of his peers. But yes, uh, he really broadened out. He was looking to pull in more and different kind of characters. You know, the, the African-American professor who's passing as Jewish in The Human Stain, for example, or the historical fiction, the sort of the World War 
War II counter narrative of what if Lindbergh had brought fascism to America of the plot against America. I thought I Married a Communist, which is a, a little known or lesser appreciated Roth book from that era, which was really revisiting the McCarthy era and revisiting people Roth did not grow up around. You know, he was famous for writing about the Jews of, of Newark, the people he grew up around, but they were pretty apolitical, non-intellectual folks. Uh, in I Married a Communist, he turned towards the intellectual communist Jews of that era. And I found that book as moving as any. So I think you're right. He became more a novelist of like the great American century. So uh, earlier I made reference to Woody Allen and I was going to bracket it with something like, well, the comedy, but not the, you know, weird sexism. But you know what? Maybe, <laughs> maybe a little of the weird, I mean, okay, Woody Allen and the accusations of child molestation, no. But what about the sexism in Philip Roth's book for a time. So it went from scandalous to complimented for being frank to today maybe look back as, you know, two shot through with uh, masculinity. Right. I mean, I think there's a fair version of that critique and an unfair version of that critique. The fair version is that for somebody with such a great interest in the the whole human experience, for somebody who did broaden out and start writing African-American characters and female characters and, and characters who weren't born in America, immigrant characters, he never did write a great female protagonist. He, he really didn't seem to have access to, and maybe he yeah. just knew that he didn't have access to it. Maybe uh, he, he just realized that wasn't his, his fort, but he never did write the great female protagonist. Uh, and that's pretty apparent. Even his sort of secondary female characters often just don't seem as deeply or, or thoughtfully drawn as his male characters. The one attempt he made to write uh, a female protagonist was a really terrible novel, uh, When She Was Good, from I think 1967, which is deservedly one of the least read Philip Roth novels. <laughs> so, so that's a fair version of the critique. The unfair version is that there's something about the eroticism and sexuality uh, and, and obscenity that's misogynist. I think he was um, exploring a side that exists in all humans. All humans have a, a dark sexual fetishizing or eroticizing side that they're a little ashamed to bring to the light of day. And his characters and his protagonists did that. And I think that's a, a service to art. And I, I think that there's a real unfairness. It doesn't mean it appeals to everyone. I certainly know more women than men who would say, I'm not into that, that side of Roth. Fair enough. But the fact that he's portraying it, I don't see as inherently sexist in any way. It's very hard in, in a spoken interview to uh, in some way convey how great he was on the page on a sentence-by-sentence sentence level. But if anyone can do it, it's a man who knows how to pronounce fort as not forte. So give it a shot. <laughs> um, Roth was someone who operated, he had, he had several different modes. And even within a story, he could have different modes. He is the only American ever to pull off good stream-of-consciousness writing, you know, to, to take what someone like Joyce had done and, you know, and I'm going to say he was better at this than Gertrude Stein was. If you read Portnoy's Complaint, at, at first glance, you say, oh, he's just vomiting ideas onto the page. It's stream of consciousness. But the fact that it's a 200-page stream of consciousness that keeps you entranced the entire time shows how carefully crafted and curated it was. It wasn't just him talking into a dictaphone all the thoughts that came into his head or his protagonist's head. Uh, he made stream of consciousness incredibly interesting. And then what he did in later novels from, from the 70s forward was he returned to the early short story version of 1959, those great works from Goodbye Columbus. And he really operated... I would say, as well as anyone in the century except maybe Bernard Malamud, who was his peer at this, at finding the poetry in 
regional and ethnic dialects. You know, if you look at the way that the Hasidic immigrant speaks in Eli the Fanatic, if you look at the way that the suburban Jewish matrons speak in Goodbye Columbus, those are voices that are really easy to caricature, right? You can very easily slip into blackface or shall I say Jewface when writing those characters. And Roth always leaves them with their dignity because they sound authentic. They sound like he knows them, that, that they live in his bones. So, okay, there's a way in which Sophie Portnoy is the, is the monstrous Jewish American mother. And Roth was hated by many Jews and decried by the Jewish people at the time for having written that character. Fair enough. But when you read her cadences, you're reading something that's really true. Uh, you're reading that he actually listened to his mother. And ultimately, listening is the real, the real gratitude that novelists show to their fellow human beings. Mark Oppenheimer is the host of the podcast Unorthodox. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. One of Michael Cohen's business partners Evegni Jean Friedman entered a guilty plea in New York State court as part of a cooperation deal with prosecutors. Friedman is known as the Taxi King. The Taxi King. Because at one point, Friedman owned more than 800 taxi medallions. And this is Business Insider describing what a taxi medallion is. Taxi medallions, the metal plates on the hoods of yellow cabs that allow them to operate legally on the New York City streets. I think, I think they've got it a little wrong. I mean, that's technically true, but I do not think that it's actually the medallion that allows the cab to operate. I believe that it is the license and buying the medallion that allows the cab to operate, and the medallion just shows that you have paid for that right for the cab to operate. It's a little bit of a synecdoche. Like if we described him as owning 800 head of cattle and then defined head of cattle as the part of the cattle that is beyond the shoulders that allows the cattle to think and get a mouthful of grass. Anyway, he did own these taxi medallions, making him the taxi king. But his kingdom doesn't seem to be what it once was. Taxi medallions once sold for a million dollars. Now they're going for as little as $175,000. So maybe we could downgrade the guy to the taxi count. I was looking up some other titles of lesser nobility. In uh, Dutch, there is a Jankier. A Jankier? I think he's below account. Let us call Jean Yvegni Friedman the taxi Jankier. But what do you think? What do you think of another person in Trump's orbit who flipped? I saw Kevin Drum writing about this in Mother Jones. That guy's great. And the reasonable take on the investigation, and by reasonable, he puts reasonable in quotes because he's a little afraid of what the reasonable people are concluding. Uh, reasonable in terms of maybe even chronically even-handed. So this reasonable take acknowledges that, yes, the expansive investigation has ensnared many ancillary rapscallions, many peripheral rogues, a tertiary dirtball or two, but no one named Trump or Kushner. And perhaps there will be closer associates who are sullied, in fact, many have been sullied, tangibly sullied. We do have a raft of guilty pleas, let us not forget. Flynn, Gates, Papadopoulos, reportedly Friedman now, Yohai, Venderswan, Pinedo, Manafort was indicted, three Russian companies were indicted, 13 Russian nationals were indicted. But reasonable, temperate, chronically even-handed people will read into this and say, yes, 
but it's not collusion. It doesn't prove collusion, and there's no one named Trump. Now, I hear Democrats, the, the counter-argument to that is I hear Democrats pointing out, my God, the noose is tightening. How could you look at these developments and say, yeah, but still, you have got to say no and stop. I hear the Pod Save America take. This would be like the biggest story in the world two years ago with any other president. Yes, yes, it would be a big story. But is it reasonable? Is it right to call such stories a big story? I don't think we should call every chili cook-off a four-alarm fire. Maybe, maybe during another presidency, we'd go too far by regarding every scandal close to the president as potentially threatening to the presidency. I mean, yes, the men I've listed, all men, these uh, satellite slime buckets, they're bad, they're bad dudes. But do they really reflect worse upon Trump? Really, to be really fair, worse on Trump than Webb Hubble reflected on Bill Clinton? Remember Webster Hubble? Arkansas politician, ally of Bill Clinton. He was a top official during the transition. Clinton appointed him to be White House liaison to the DOJ, but he was caught up in Ken Starr's investigation, special investigator Ken Starr with his expansive powers. And Webb Hubble wound up serving a year and a half in jail, was later pardoned. But still, that was quite a story then. That was quite an outrage then. Should it have been? Maybe the taxi king or Jeffrey Yohai will shake the core of our democracy to the same extent that Webb Hubble's transgressions did, which say they didn't. They didn't really shake the core of our democracy. On the other hand, I think it's fine to say maybe a big indictment will happen, maybe it won't. I caution myself against being too sure of anything because everything we know or think we know about the absence of evidence thus far comes from Trump people and people close to Trump telling us things what the Mueller people or Mueller himself is doing. The only thing out of the Mueller side is silence and some indictments. And also, I guess, the reasonable guy argument that no Trump or Kushner has been indicted, that overlooks the fact that one of the guys who's been indicted did run the campaign for a while. The other was the national security advisor. They were indicted. That does seem like a big deal, doesn't it? I've been hearing a lot of talking about how the absence of statements from Mueller allows Trump to win the day, to win the argument, to win the talking points. All right, this is like loading the bases in the middle innings, but we're going to see how many runs score, and the other team hasn't even gotten up to bat yet. In fact, what do we know about the Mueller investigation? Things like, oh, the Mueller investigation is said to wrap up by September 1st, and the subhead in that Times article was, according to Rudy Giuliani, no collusion, according to a source familiar with the president's thinking, witch hunt, according to cat entrails and a lot of guys with MAGA in their name on Twitter. I don't know what the taxi cab king flipping means for Cohen, Trump, Kushner, 13 Russians. I probably know what it means for the Russians. Not much. We're not going to touch them anyway. I guess the one thing that we can conclude or surmise from this particular indictment is that a bunch of taxicab medallions are about to come on the market. And when they hold the auction, I just might take an Uber down there to put in a bid. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname grew up in California and outside of Philadelphia, but he always imagined attending Waquanic High. There was just something about it. Mary Wilson, 
just senior producer, now takes the title greatest living senior producer, never to have won a Nobel Prize in anything other than chemistry, I guess, if that. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, until this interview, always thought the human stain might have referred to that guy Jax from Vanderpump Rules. The, the time frames don't work out, but he hasn't been thinking that hard about it. The gist. You know, I say let us think of Philip Roth, let us honor his work, but let us also celebrate the living while at the same time passing on the liver. Umperu, depuru, duperu, and subscribe to Upon Further Review. And thanks for listening.